0: welding instructor alex declare knows vr training platforms like forge fx help students master their skills
1: there's a big learning curve with welding virtual reality simulates that
0: exact muscle memory that they need learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact
2: this is masters in business with barry ritholtz on bloomberg radio this week on the podcast i have an extra special guest His name is Sebastian Page. He is the head of multi-asset investing at investing giant T. Rowe Price. They run about $1.3 trillion. He runs about 360 billion of it. This really is a masterclass on asset allocation, diversification, risk management, and the concept of expected returns versus expected risk. As it turns out, it's easier to predict risk than it is to predict returns. I don't know what else I can say about this other than if you are an asset allocator, a wealth manager, anybody who's thinking about managing assets over the next 10, 20, 30 years, then you're gonna find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview of Sebastian Page of T. Rowe Price.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: My extra special guest this week is Sebastian Page. He is the head of Global Multi Assets at T Rowe Price. His group runs about three hundred and sixty-three billion dollars of the total one point three trillion that T Rowe Price has under management. He is the author of Beyond Diversification: What Every Investor Needs to Know About Asset Allocation and co-author of Factor Investing and Asset Allocation, Sebastian Page. Welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Thank you, Barry. Thank you for
2: inviting me. I've been looking forward to speaking with you since March. You were quite literally the very first show the pandemic led us to have to reschedule. And we'll talk a little bit about the pandemic later, but I want to dive in to your your job, your head of global multi-assets, which is a huge role. Tell us a little bit about your day-to-day responsibilities.
1: You know, it's the perfect job for me. I absolutely love it. Running a large global investment organization, in this case, over $360 billion in AUM, over 200 different portfolios. It involves not only, of course, investment oversight, staying on top of capital markets, consuming vast amounts of research, and so on but also running the business, setting a strategic vision, making sure it's executed well, recruiting and developing talent, managing product development projects. And also, I'm a member of Kiro's Management Committee, where I'm representing our division and helping manage our entire firm. So the job is very broad, and I learn something every day. Barry, I know you run your own successful company and you're a thought leader. So I'm guessing it's it's a very broad set of responsibilities too. So in that sense, running an investment division in a large but agile company is probably not that different.
2: Huh. You know, it's funny when I discuss what I do with relatives, they're so impressed by $2 billion and I always laugh and have to explain, no, no, you don't understand. $2 billion is nothing. Big shops are running hundreds of billions and, and trillions of dollars. So given the size of the assets you manage, how do you think about multi-assets? What, what's the thought process like when you're assembling an investment posture? Are you thinking about stock picking or different sectors or global regions? How does a multi-asset portfolio come together?
1: It's all about putting all the capabilities of the firm together in one neat package or vehicle for different clients. So we put together capabilities across tactical asset allocation. Think about decisions to tilt the portfolios with a 6- to 18-month horizon to take advantage of relative valuation opportunities, but also strategic asset allocation, constructing the portfolio for the long run, trading off returns against risk, positioning the portfolio for structural advantages, structural alphas, and also security selection that we typically source in a funds of funds format. So we'll allocate to underlying t price building blocks. So most of what we do is to put all these capabilities together and then customize them in different ways for different types of investors.
2: So you're also on the Asset Allocation Committee, which is responsible for tactical investment decisions, and you're a member of the firm's target date franchise, which is a whole different animal, and the broader management committee at large. How do all these very, very different pieces fit together? It sounds like you have a lot of different roles to juggle.
1: Yeah, our asset allocation committee is responsible for tactical asset allocation decisions. That's all we do on that committee. We bring together some of our most senior investors from equities, fixed income, and multi-asset. And as I mentioned, Barry, we take a six to 18 month horizon. We typically meet once a month and we're very much focused on relative valuation opportunities but we also take into account macro, think business cycle, monetary policy, fundamental, think earnings projections and the like, as well as technical, think flows, momentum, sentiment. So valuations are a main driver of decisions, but ideally, we want to take positions where all these factors align. So that's for the Asset Allocation Committee. As you mentioned, I'm also a member of the Management Committee. That committee is chaired by our CEO. And it's responsible for managing the entire firm of 7,000-plus employees across 16 countries, you know, the entire $1 trillion in AUM, if you will. There on that committee, I need to take my multi-asset hat off and put the Tiro price hat on. And you know, we meet for at least two hours every week. We interact with our board. We set the strategic direction for the firm. And we manage execution. That part of my job, Barry, has been a fantastic learning opportunity for me.
2: So you mentioned earlier strategic allocation, and and you just were discussing tactical allocation. For the listener who may not be deep into asset management, explain the difference between the two.
1: So tactical asset allocation, the way we define it, is about taking advantage of primarily relative valuation opportunities, and the time horizon is perhaps a medium time horizon if you think about 6 to 18 months. So it's not day-to-day, day trading, if you will, big macro bets. It's more about leaning against the wind and looking for situations where valuations are at extreme and other factors give you confidence that you can take advantage of those dislocations. That's what we mean by tactical asset allocation. It's not what I would call gunslinging. It's more about incrementally taking advantage of those opportunities in markets. Strategic asset allocation, Barry, is broader, and it's about how do you construct a portfolio for a given investor or a given institution for the long run, And the lots of questions are being asked these days about whether the 60-40 is dead, for example. That's a typical strategic asset allocation question. Should we hold alternative assets in the portfolio? That's also a strategic asset allocation question. And Barry, the biggest question of them all for strategic asset allocation is, how much stocks should I hold versus bonds for the long run? So... Those are the differences in the way we define tactical and strategic.
0: Hmm,
2: Quite interesting. You know, I, I can't help but notice T. Rowe Price, obviously a very large organization, but you spent the early parts of your career at State Street and PIMCO, also two giant organizations. What are the advantages and the challenges of working in such large firms?
1: Oh, good question. You know, I can't speak a lot. To small firms, because as you said, I spent most of my career at very large firms, but let's start with what I would say is one of the most underestimated advantages of being at a large firm. Large company, those that are successful over time, that know how to innovate and take risks, have some advantages over startups. It's, you know, it's not like startups, they call the risks and large companies are sleepy giants waiting to get disrupted. disrupted. I, I, that's a cliche to me that it ignores how successful large companies really operate. So I've been lucky enough to work at fantastic companies where I've been put in positions to essentially run startup initiatives, but with two very big advantages. Number one, resources, usually in the form of headcount and brand and marketing support, and second, you know, better career support that, it, that I would have gotten at a startup, for example. Now, I, I don't want to diminish the role of startups in our economy, but sometimes people think of big companies versus startups in black and white terms, and it really is not like that in terms of innovation. But, you know, that being said, I, the main disadvantage is what you would expect right? No matter how agile large companies are, no matter how successful, you'll always face frictions involved with managing change inside large organizations. You know, there's this tired analogy that it's harder to, to turn a super tanker than a jet ski. You know, it takes a tremendous amount of leadership and political savvy. And with apologies to Elon Musk, PowerPoints, uh, in order to align people inside large organizations and move large organizations and I'm still working on getting better at this, but to me, the advantages of working at successful large organizations outweigh the disadvantages for me so so working at the, at, at a large company is a high risk adjusted return proposition or a high sharp ratio if you will to use uh, right an investment term but but the, the trade-off is i'll never be a billionaire founder but but that's okay that's okay with me
2: uh I'll, you know a little secret most of us are never going to be billionaire founders but we'll hold that myth off to the side one one last question about allocations so within the asset allocation committee is the firm's target date fund practice i have this horrible bias thinking that that is the easiest gig in the world. You set a target date. You do almost nothing going forward. It kind of runs itself over 30, 40 years. Disabuse me of that understanding.
1: It's very hard for non-investment professionals to determine their own asset allocation, right? And with the DC, defined contribution system, in the united states that's essentially what we've asked people to do we've asked them to take control of their investments and their asset allocation decisions so i was talking with the financial advisors recently and you know he put it that way he said asking non-investment professionals to manage their investment is a big ask do we ask people to perform their own surgeries no we ask a surgeon so The Target Date Fund has the advantage of mapping people to the most important decision, which is the stocks versus bonds decision, based on how far they are away from retirement. And if you read my book, Barry, you'll find that there's a lot of science and research and practice and judgment involved in calibrating those target date funds to meet the needs of the different populations inside these different plans. So people who are putting it, putting money aside for retirement and the calibration takes into account your risk tolerance. And it is, I agree with you, it is in a sense an autopilot solution because it'll change your stock bond mix automatically as you age. You'll have the target date fund manager select the underlying building blocks, monitor those, and add other capabilities like the ones I was mentioning earlier on tactical asset allocation. So it's meant to be an easy solution for investors inside of DC plans. So if you take that lens, it's not that surprising that they've become the default option of choice.
0: Mm -hmm. Quite, Quite interesting. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting, you can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
2: So, Sebastian, let's talk a little bit about asset allocation. You you mentioned the 60-40 portfolio. It's been pronounced dead, I don't know, a dozen times over the last decade, but with rates... Under 1% and, and zero not too far off in the future, maybe this time is, is the time where the 60-40 portfolio really is dead. What, what do you think about that traditional asset allocation mix?
1: Gary, these days, that's the perfect question to ask an asset allocator if you want a long answer. It's a really <laughs> important and well-discussed question. Let me start with the conclusion. The 60-40 portfolio is not bad, but it needs to be improved. I have three main concerns with the 60-40, and the first one is really obvious, is that the 60-40 provides a specific risk profile, and not everybody should have that risk profile. So it is too generic if you think about it as blanket advice. Depending on how far you are from retirement, for example, earlier we're talking about target date funds, you should probably have a different mix between stocks and bonds. People need to account for their risk tolerance. You know, the question, how much stocks should I own, is often, especially these days, probably more than you think. I, I talk about this in my book, but if you look at target date strategies, Someone who's 15 years from retirement, say 50 years old, uh, we think should hold about 80 percent of their portfolios in stock. And at retirement, the equity weight is still about 55 percent. And this is because, you know, longevity says or longevity risk is an important factor. And it says, you know, even at retirement, you can expect to live for another 20, 25 30 years. So you want your money to last. So that's kind of the first thing to say about the 60-40. Let's just all realize that it's very generic advice in terms of the stock bond mix. Second, really important, risk is not stable over time. Think about it this way. On a rolling one-year basis, if I calculate the volatility of a 60-40 portfolio, depending on the environment, I can get as much as 20% volatility or as little as 5% volatility. So that's for the same asset mix. 60-40 can look very aggressive when markets are volatile, and it can look very conservative in quiet times. Our industry is evolving towards more dynamic risk management to stabilize risk. Think target risk rather than target allocation. And the mm-hmm. third issue at the 60-40, to your question, Barry, capital markets have changed. Interest rates are now post-COVID 100 basis points lower than they were before COVID. And that's about a 50% drop relative to their level at the beginning of the year. So this means that for the same expected return, people need to take more risk. Or let me phrase it this way. In order to hope to achieve the same expected return, people need to take more risk. Uh, So it's not just the search for yield anymore, it's the search for returns. The Barclays Ag has a yield of, you know, say 1.2%, which is essentially zero after inflation. And our solutions team has done a study, and they found that in order to reach a 6% expected return, now there are lots of assumptions here, it depends which asset classes you pick, it depends how you model forward returns, but roughly speaking, given current rate levels... You actually need about 80% in stocks if you want to Uh reach for a 6% expected return going forward. And to make things worse, bonds no longer diversify stocks as much as they did in the past. So maybe the answer to the question, how much stocks – should I hold? Again, as I mentioned earlier, is often more than than you think. But I I understand the spirit of the sixty forty question is more about the role of traditional asset classes, right? Stocks, bonds, beers, burgers, simple stuff. So my views that the sixty forty portfolio, again, is not dead. But if that's the risk level you're shooting you're shooting for, it needs to be reoptimized. And in my book, I present some model portfolios. And we have shifted 12% of the allocation from bonds to low volatility alternatives. We have a 5% allocation to a risk premium or factor strategy, if you will, the volatility premium. And there's also a dedicated long bond allocation of 3% to 4%. The other thing we did in that model portfolio is that within equities, you can swap 5% to 10% of your stocks, traditional long-only stocks. To risk manage or defensive equities. Uh, there are different ways of doing that. Those are, a lot of those are now available on advisor platforms, for example, and some of them integrate, integrate dynamic risk management. So, as I said, Barry, if you want to get an asset allocator, an, an asset allocator talking, ask them about the 6040 and whether it's dead. The bottom line is that you know, it's fairly generic advice. You have to calibrate this for risk. You have to account for changing risk over time. Uh, capital markets have changed so your expectations from the 60-40 change. And ultimately, I think you can reoptimize it with these different solutions I just mentioned.
2: So let's stick with the role of bonds within that beer and burger portfolio. We know that they're a diversifier, but not as much as they used to be. We know that they produce yield, but really not enough in real terms, there's still the element of fixed income as the volatility dampener versus equity, or is that no longer the case? What are your thoughts about that?
1: Bonds and treasuries in particular can still dampen volatility in your portfolio, but I have to say that these days, if you ask asset allocators what keeps them up at night, uh, a number of them will say, and I'll include myself, the worry that treasuries, with the exception of the very long-dated treasuries, have lost most of their diversification benefits. And I'll give you an example. The U.S. equity market had a drawdown of 9% in September of 2020. During that drawdown, the treasuries index actually lost 15 basis points over that time period. The zero bound limits upside for treasuries, and this, very is simple math right? You can't go up during a shock when stocks are selling off a lot more than your duration times the amount by which rates can go down. Duration times the change in rates. And look at German boons during COVID, right? They only went up 2% in Q1, 2020. Meanwhile, the Germany stock index was down 25%. So maybe, maybe treasuries, can dampen volatility, but they don't really hedge your risk in the sense of rallying when you're incurring really large losses on stocks. So you have to look for alternatives. You can extend duration. And if you look at the long treasuries index during Q1 of 2020, it was up 20%. But again, as yield approached zero, even in the long end, Uh, gains of that magnitude become unlikely. My view is you have about one more good big crisis in long treasuries, uh, if you will. Then you have to start thinking, okay, if I can't diversify, if I can't get the hedging from treasuries, where am I going to get it? The simplest way of doing that is to buy put options on stocks. But that can be really Mm -hmm. expensive. You have to pay for it. With treasuries in a normal environment, at least you get a positive yield. I mentioned earlier the possibility of dynamically managing your risk. I think this is becoming more important for asset allocators and for our industry, for example, with so-called managed volatility strategies or defensive macro strategies. Some of those strategies can pick up the slack from treasuries going forward. Uh, You can consider absolute return strategies, adding those to your portfolio because they allow for short positions, which can be very effective hedges. Or look at other diversifiers. This is usually the answer people will give you. Very Treasuries don't diversify as much. Look at gold. Uh, I don't know. Gold can trade like a risk asset in the short run, at least. Look at investment grade bonds. They still have default risks. Low interest rate currencies like the Japanese yen may help. They tend to rally when stocks sell off. But you have to ask, what's the expected return on currencies? It can be quite low. So when mm. all else fails, you can either accept higher exposure to loss going forward or reduce or reoptimize your equity exposure, given your risk tolerance. And I mentioned allocating to risk-managed equity solutions, for example. Uh, Barry, when I uh, – this question – brings to mind a story I have in my book. When I worked at State Street, I had a really great mentor, and I talk about him in the book. He had a fairly dry sense of humor. And uh, one day I was in his office complaining about my career. No, I was saying my career was not going the way I wanted it to go. And he looked at me, and he was getting impatient, and he asked, Sebastian, do you know the secret to happiness in life? So I've got to the edge of my seat. Do you know what he said, Barry?
2: <laughs> Go ahead.
1: He, he said, the secret to happiness in life is to lower your expectations. So with rates at the zero bound, the bottom line is that investors have to lower their expectations for forward returns on both stocks and bonds and for how much treasuries can rally when stocks are
2: selling off. Huh, quite interesting. Last question on asset allocation and diversification. We've been waiting uh, for a long time to see when investments outside of the U.S. will begin to pay off. They've lagged for the better part of a decade. Um, When are we going to see the benefits of global diversification? Or or has the law of mean reversion been repealed?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because non-U.S stocks have underperformed for a long time. And this is an example of where relative valuation has not worked in terms of reversion towards the mean because other factors have not lined up. But let's think about the usual disclaimer. I'm sure you tell that to all your clients, Barry. Past returns aren't indicative of future returns. Uh, that's a generic statement that I talk a lot about in my book, but. I show that over, say, five- or 10-year horizons, relative returns and valuations tend to mean reverts. So it's possible that, going forward, non-U.S. markets could outperform. I believe that from a long-term perspective, emerging markets in particular are positioned for higher growth than the rest of the world, given where they are in their business cycles and given their demographics. And if you want to get a little bit more tactical, In an economic recovery, economies that are more levered, like Europe, for example, that have more cyclical exposures, could outperform. The other way, so that's one way to think about this, is that let's just look forward when we try to answer that question as opposed to backwards. And if we look forward, history says the likelihood of mean reversion, given where we are, uh, could be fairly high. Second, you know, there's just more breadth. There's more opportunities for alpha and global portfolios compared to portfolios that are concentrated in the U.S., especially with the current environment, with the fangs dominating the U.S. market. There are more than 14,000 companies that are included in the MSCI All-Country World Index.
2: So more than just those nine or 10 in the U.S. that seem to be driving returns this year.
1: Right, which leads to better opportunities for alpha, for stock pickers, for those that know how to do that well. So you have the advantage of relative valuation and looking forward relative to backwards and the breadth of investment opportunities working in your favor.
2: Quite Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about some of the research and writing you do. Not only have you written two books, but you've co-authored a number of award-winning papers for the Journal of... Portfolio Management, and for the Financial Analysts Journal. Tell us a bit about how and why you write. You spend an awful lot of time putting out well-regarded research. What's the motivation?
1: My motivation, in particular for the book, was to build a bridge between investment research, academic research, and the practice of investment with a focus on asset allocation decisions. So I reviewed over 200 papers. I integrated some insights from my colleagues at T. Rowe Price, as well as from my own 20 years in the business. And one thing I wanted to do, Barry, with this book was make it accessible without sacrificing the rigor. An author I had in mind when I started writing is Malcolm Gladwell. You know how he takes deep research and makes it interesting and accessible? I wanted to write something like that for asset allocation. And, you know, you could say finance is in my DNA. I have absolute passion for it. And working on this book, I wouldn't call it work at all. It's what I do. It's how I think. And I had this desire to put it all together in an organized way, going from forecasting return, forecasting risk, and then constructing portfolios. That's how I've divided the three sections in the book.
0: When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
2: So let's talk a little bit about some of the problems of forecasting especially things like fat tails, black swans, and other financial disasters. How does the finance industry think about fat tails? Do we pay enough attention to these 100-year floods that seem to come along, despite their name, every 10 years or so?
1: Yeah, those are interesting statistics, and I actually have a chapter where I talk about those probabilities, and how they compare in real life versus mathematical models that rely on a normal distribution. Look, the issue of fat tails is actually a really well-known issue, but I would argue we don't pay enough attention to it. I would say many quantitative analysts, especially when they backtest strategies like risk factor premium, for example, don't really account properly for fat tails. Someone once told me that the only people capable of generating a sharp ratio of 3.0, so 3.0 return to risk ratio, were either Bernie Madoff or quantitative analysts running back tests. And in the book, I have a great example for this. It's from Andrew Lowe. He's a professor at MIT. And there's a fascinating case study on the issue of fat tails in a paper he wrote in the early 2000s. His study is based on monthly data from January 92 to December 99. And he simulates an investment strategy that requires no investment skill whatsoever. Okay? Okay. No analysis, no foresight, no judgment. The strategy is so simple, a monkey could do it. But despite the simplicity in Angelo's backtest, the strategy doubles the sharp ratio of the S&P 500 from 0.98 to 1.94. So double the risk-adjusted return. It only has six negative months compared to 36 for the S&P 500. And here I'm going to quote Andrew Lowe because he sets it up nicely. He writes, by all accounts, this is an enormously successful hedge fund with a track record that would be the envy of most asset managers. Then he reveals what the strategy is. And this is where we illustrate fat tail risk. Can you guess, Barry, what the strategy is?
2: Well, I was going to say like a leveraged S&P fund, but the lack of of monthly drawdowns kind of moved me away from that. What's the strategy?
1: So in this simulation, all he does is just sell out of the money put options on the S&P 500. So essentially, he sells insurance. The strategy is just to load up on tail risks. And it just so happened that in the 90s, you didn't really get called on those short-put options. But what it is is picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And when you look at many risk premia or how our industry thinks about liquidity risk, for example, or carry strategies, or even how we construct allocations to credit in our portfolios, a lot of those strategies, return streams, if you will, are short an optional. And that is embedded tail risk that our industry ought to pay more attention to and find better ways to model. So I have a couple chapters on that in the book, the black swans,
2: if you will. So since you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell, I remember a piece he wrote, I want to say early 2000s, uh, about tail risk. And he has... On one side of the trade, I think it was Victor Niederhofer, who was on the other side of that tail risk trade, and uh, Nassim Taleb as the buyer of puts, which was money losing until, for, for years and years and years until the bulldozer comes along in 2000. And so the writer of puts were minting money all through the 1990s until the dot-com collapse takes place Then the buyer of puts becomes the big winner, and the drawdowns were so catastrophic that they completely wipe out not only all the gains for the previous decade, but they pretty much bankrupt the writer of puts that whole time. Am I portraying that more or less correctly?
1: Yeah, and it's a good example because it's extreme, and it's directly using nonlinear instruments like put. But the issue of fat tails is broader than that, right? It's the behavior of markets. It's how we think about so-called carry strategy. It's how we think about credit. It's how we think about liquidity risk in portfolios. And, you know, even you and I, Barry, so far in this podcast, have talked a lot about volatility. But really, when we think about forecasting risk, constructing portfolio We really ought to talk about exposure to loss, which, when you have options, like in the example you described, is obviously different from your volatility. And in my Andrew Lowe example, exposure to loss is obviously different from volatility. And I'm not claiming this is not something that our industry knows. We just ought to have the right tools and the right approaches and the right way of thinking about those exposures. And it's not just hedging or put options. It's a lot of aspects of financial markets.
2: Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the future of investing. You've done a decent amount of research on active versus passive uh, and about the entire debate that's grown up around it. Tell us about your findings.
1: A good question. And Barry, I saw you wrote a good article about active versus passive where you show that Passive is not taken over the world when you measure the asset size correctly. And you talk about your approach, whether there's place for both active and passive. So I'm with you on that. Broadly speaking, passive creates opportunities for active. And in my book, I have an example about this. I talk about when ETFs trade around a theme with high volume. And how when that happens, all the constituents in the ETF start moving together, irrespective of fundamentals. So I show those correlation spikes. This creates opportunities for stock pickers. So I show examples where, for example, regulators were going after drug pricing practices and people were selling the healthcare ETF, dragging down companies. Uh, that have nothing to do with drug pricing, like medical equipment right. or contact lenses. So those are good examples of when people, uh, stock pickers, would have had opportunities to buy temporarily undervalued companies because they're just they're just being dragged down with ETF trading. Uh, they're also good examples of when people, for example, sold financials because of lower rates. But companies with positive duration, like REITs, which used to be part of financials, would sell off as well. So it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In the original paper on this, we titled it The Revenge of the Stock Pickers. Look, I, I, I just don't think we should look at average results for active managers. We need to look at how skilled active management is done, those that can add value with consistent rep- replicable philosophy and process, depth of resources to do that. And I'm not at all saying that there's no place for passive. It's not a black and white answer. In my mind, there's a place for both active and passive in markets, as I saw in the article you wrote. And, and remember, you know, passive ultimately doesn't work if you don't have active managers setting prices.
2: Quite, quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about risk appetite, Here we are. It's the end of the year. We're recording this uh, a a few days before Christmas, and it appears that risk appetite is very high. SPACs have gone postal. IPOs are are doing really well. Robinhood traders are, you know, I know it's not a lot of capital, but it's certainly a lot of mindshare. Anecdotally, it seems like this younger generation is really embracing risk. What, What do you think this means?
1: In the current environment, it certainly creates fragility in markets. The puzzling thing is that risk appetite at the moment seems high, but in pockets of the the markets, rather than, say, a systemic issue as in prior crises. So pockets of the markets like the one you mentioned, SPACs, IPO, Robinhood, some technology companies, but if you look at so we have a composite indicator where we put together a bunch of variables on surveys to get investor sentiment as well as positioning that composite indicator is is only slightly above medium and you also still have the proverbial and I hesitate to use the term but cash on the sidelines in the sense that, There's 700 billion extra AUM in money market accounts versus what we had pre-COVID. So what's happening? Why are pockets of the market showing fragility? I mean, we've flooded the markets with liquidity. Uh, We had at one point 30% year-over-year growth on money supply. That's basically the biggest jump in the data set that I have. And I've seen estimates for stimulus measures between fiscal and monetary globally as high as $25 trillion, depending how you measure it. But that's a tremendous amount of liquidity, so it will create pockets of speculation. But I don't see it at this point as a systemic issue for markets. Ultimately, Barry, in our portfolios right now, we're neutral between stocks and bonds. And we're taking advantage of relative valuations on the recovery trade with long positions, for example, in small caps. And we've started to lean into value. And we have some credit exposures, for example, in loans, which benefit from rising rates. So, yes, sentiment is high. There are pockets of fragility in the market, not a systemic issue, in my mind, at the moment.
2: Quite interesting. We mentioned uh, value a little bit. Let's talk about value. Is the value trade dead? Is it just that growth has done so much better than value, um, not only during the pandemic, but the past decade? When do we see some sort of uh, catch-up of value towards growth or not? Does it just never happen?
1: You know, you're really asking all the hot button questions for asset allocators, <laughs> right? The role of bonds going forward is the 60/40 dead. Value growth is the other one, and in our asset allocation committee, we debate it all the time. I don't think value is dead. In fact, in the medium term, you could see rotate. You know, the rotation that started with vaccine news continue during the economic recovery. But then it's clear still to me that growth has some secular, which I uh, think long-term, advantages. Um, growth stocks do well in low-rate environments, and there's clearly a sector advantage with technology disruption being more tilted or oriented uh, in, in, in growth stocks and in the growth style versus value. But the other reason I would say value is not dead, there's a tactical opportunity here because we're entering an economic recovery. But also, if you step back and you think in a capitalist system, companies evolve and reinvent themselves. Banks can make money in low-rate environments. Think of those that have thriving wealth management businesses or trading, for example. Energy companies, which are also a big component of value stocks, uh, can move and are moving to sustainable energy models and, and so on. So I don't think value is dead, Barry.
2: And, you know, if we look beyond traditional value, look at some other factors, small cap value has been on a tear. The Russell 2000 exploded in the second half of this year. I think it's substantially outperformed the S&P 500. So maybe the concept of factor investing and value investing is going to be around in the future. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, we're in an interesting position right now because if you look at academic studies, a good time to buy is when both value and momentum agree. So to your point, we started getting really unexpected news on the vaccine, like 95 percent effectiveness and updates on production capacity were not priced in. I was looking at probabilities produced by the group called the super forecasters, and the forecast was 50 percent chance that we get 21 million doses before March 2021. So coin toss. Pfizer came out with their news, and to illustrate how that was not priced in, that probability immediately jumped to 88 and now it's at 99%. So that has helped those small-cap value sectors perform well. They're still cheap on a relative basis to other parts of the stock market. So you have agreement between positive momentum and – attractive valuation, which historically across markets is a good time to buy into the asset class. Now, add to that the macro factor. You can check the macro box, too, because we're in a recovery from a fairly drastic shock. But you can think that there is a fair amount of pent-up demand in the economy and that year-over-year comparables will be showing substantial growth. And small caps and value tend to be the asset classes of choice during an economic recovery. So check that box, too. And then you can, to a certain extent, check the sentiment and technicals box as well. So the stars are starting to align at the 6- to 18-month horizon for the recovery trade. However, it's really going to be a bumpy ride. And as we're recording this webcast, Barry, we're getting some worrisome news about how devastating this new wave of the virus is while we're waiting for the vaccine to be deployed, including mutations, travel restrictions, and so on. So it's the fact that the destination is pretty clear, but the path to get there is treacherous.
0: When cybercriminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
2: So you bring up so many interesting points I, I have to ask you about one is the combination of momentum and value combining the two my friend Wes gray at alpha architects has written about combining momentum and value the returns are spectacular but the volatility he describes as just so horrific even god couldn't manage that portfolio Um, eventually clients would just scream bloody murder because the drawdowns are so brutal how do you deal with things like that? Obviously, that's an extreme, but how do you deal with the drawdowns and the volatility? I know it's the price of admission for performance, but clients have a really hard time living through those periods where you know, you're know you underperforming, and, and sometimes, if you've been a global value investor, significantly underperforming.
1: Yeah, let me give you a kind of pithy, answer, but I think it's important, and then a more philosophical answer. The kind of immediate answer is, look, implementation matters as well. If you make a statement like when value and momentum agree, it's a good time to buy, and you design a strategy to take advantage of that, the strategy that you actually design and the way you implement that broad concept can lead to vastly different Exposure to loss and vastly different performance over time. So it's a broad statement where implementation and risk management practices matter quite a bit. So that's very few of my pithy answer. But philosophically, if I meet someone in an ele- elevator and you give me 30 seconds to give investment advice between floors two and four, I'm going to say stay invested for the long run and stay diversified. So those are probably the two most generic pieces of investment advice, but I think they're important. Where it gets complicated uh, is, again, in terms of implementation. Diversification means different things depending on what you have on the menu, what you diversify across, and depending on which market environment you look at a big theme in my book is that diversification, you know, between risk assets, it actually works really well when markets are rallying, which is, if you think about it, when you don't want it, and it really doesn't work when markets are crashing, as we've seen this year in Q1 during COVID. So While this is generic, I think, important advice, again, the implementation of how you diversify, and the title of my book is Beyond Diversification, what you do beyond that matters quite a lot. But if you look over time, staying invested is probably the most important of the two pieces of advice, because over time, if you can weather... Exposure to loss, especially in a low rate environment where you're not going to get anything out of bonds, anyways. Right. If your time horizon is long enough, it will pay off. So there's investor <laughs> psychology in there. And I'm guessing a lot of financial advisors are listening to your podcast and they're probably throwing their phones on the wall at me right now because <laughs> if you're a financial advisor, Investor psychology is what you have to deal with with your clients day to day. And your sure. role is essentially to tell them not to sell in March of 2020.
2: Right. And right. if anything, and, and, to
1: add back to risk assets. I'm not making light of investor psychology. It's quite important factor, especially for financial advisors that deal with clients, you know, day to day.
2: So we've talked about hamburgers and beer. We've talked about stocks and bonds. We haven't talked about private assets, like venture capital or private equity or structured notes or any of the other non-publicly traded items that are out there, what are your views, given lowered expected returns for stocks and lowered expected returns for bonds, what are your views on these various private, not publicly traded assets within asset allocation and the world of diversification?
1: Private assets can have a role in many portfolios, but there are not a free lunch. And many investors think of private assets as a free lunch, private equity in particular. This is fascinating, but if you ask me, uh, in the context of what I mentioned earlier, that I wrote my book in part to bring academic finance into the industry, into the practice of asset allocation... If you ask me where academic research and investment practice disagree the most, the biggest chasm in our industry between the two, I'll tell you it's on the performance of private assets over time. And you see a lot of numbers that suggest that private equity outperforms public equity by a lot, both in absolute and in a risk-adjusted basis. And then if you dig into academic research where people actually scrub the data and they remove zombie valuations from the database and they account properly for survivorship bias and reporting bias and they account properly for the timing of cash flows coming in and out, you start uncovering a completely different story. There's an academic who's done a lot of research on that. I quote him in my book. His name is Ludovic Falipu. And he shows in some of his papers that actually private equity, over long periods of time, can actually underperform public equities. Now, there's a wide range uh, sure. within private equity, and it depends who you invest with. But it's, it's a fascinating, it's a, it's a gigantic chasm between industry and academic research. The takeaway, I talk about this in my book, is that it's, not, it's just not a free lunch. You need to account for the risk properly. You can earn a liquidity premium, but it is like shorting an option to a certain extent, if you will. And if you have the right approach to it, uh, there's there's nothing wrong with private assets and private equity. They're just not the free lunch that investors are making them out to be. And I think your, investors have just have to be careful when they think about those types of investments because they're not so, as transparent as public markets.
2: Right. Clearly not as transparent. You bring up two really interesting points about private equity. One is the illiquidity premium. You're looking for a bigger payout in exchange for locking up your capital for a longer period of time. But there's also the selection process. Go back just a couple of decades, there were a few hundred private equity firms. Now, I think the last number is something like 11,000 private equity funds. How is an individual investor or even an institution supposed to make that decision about where to allocate capital to which private equity firm?
1: Yeah, you know, you have to be really careful, and there are advisors that specialize in that to taking the investor side or consultants, for example, that can help institutional investors. Individual investors have to be extra careful and work with their financial advisors. I think you really have to not just jump in based on a Google search if you will, right. because really, this an asset class. this is an asset class where the top quartile can be very different from the bottom quartile, probably even more than in public markets. I do think that the factors for success in those markets resemble the factors for success in active management in public markets, depth of resources, replicability of a proven process, a philosophy that is consistent over time, uh, experience, and so on. So you want to look for those factors as well.
2: Huh, quite interesting. I have a couple of more questions on asset allocation and investing in general. I kind of ran past the fact that you sit on a committee for the Institute for Quantitative Research. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on the rise of quantitative investing, which has become so popular along with factor-based investing and generally the use of, of high-powered computers and algorithms. Tell us a little bit about your views on quant.
1: I like active versus passive. There's a place for both quantitative and fundamental. And in the case of quant versus fundamental, the intersection of both is what fascinates me. And if you set aside applications in high-frequency trading, for example, where really the technology right. is the advantage and the research is the advantage, and you go to what we do, which is tactical asset allocation, strategic asset allocation, or even for stock pickers in general, you know, you fundamentals uh, matter and experience matters. And if you are able to bring together quantitative insights with data and judgment and experience, I think you can get a more robust investment process in a lot of cases. Look, hmm. I just want to be clear: there's a place for systematic quantitative strategies as stand alone. There's a place for fundamental stock picking, for example. But there's a tr- in between. There's a tremendous amount that our industry can do, bringing both together. And I dedicate a lot of my book uh, about this. And Barry, there's a story at the beginning of the book about a quantitative research conference that I was sitting at several years ago when a fundamental investor basically raised their hand and asked a pretty rude question amongst quantitative Peers or investors, and he basically said, You know, your models for forecasting returns are not valid uh, because they're basically garbage in. And if you use a portfolio optimization model, it's going to be garbage out. So, why use quantitative methods at all? And I'll always remember the presenter was a well-regarded thought leader, someone who's traveled academia and practice. I'll always remember what he answered. His answer, it, it stayed with me and I've used it over time. He looked at the presenter and he was clearly, he'd just landed, he's clearly jet lagged, so a little bit impatient. He looked at the presenter and he said, if you don't, and this was more a reply to the garbage in, garbage out, or so-called Geico critique. So if you don't right. think you can forecast expected returns, you shouldn't be in the investment business. And the point is that investing is about forecasting. When we invest, no matter what, we make a judgment about the future in the way we allocate our portfolio, in the way we position our portfolio. So there are quite a few chapters in my book that are about how do you use a quantitative process? We were just talking about value and momentum and when both agree. How do you use data and insights like that, but make them relevant for the current market environment? And in that intersection, you can create a replicable process where there's room for judgment and uh, you can succeed as an investor. So, uh, Barry, I'm pontificating a lot, but this is a question that I've thought about while writing my book and throughout my career, because in a sense, like I've straddled. Bottom-up and top-down investing, I've also straddled quantitative and fundamental investing, especially over the last five to ten years of my career.
2: Very interesting.
0: When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
2: There was something in one of your writings, I don't remember which, that I made a note I have to ask you about because it's so counterintuitive. And it's the longer the stream of historical investment data, the better. True or false?
1: I'm going to say false, just to be a bit controversial. The the real (laughs) answer would be just not always. Okay. Academics like to go back to the early 1900s, right? To create robust data sets. But if you think about it, the data back then, I don't know, you know, we didn't have computers. We didn't have cars. People used like a horse and buggy to get around. So many financial advisors, for example, will think about investment policy statements or strategic asset allocations for their clients based on long-term data on return and risk, and they'll average across different risk regimes. Uh, Well, first of all, in the book, I show that higher frequency, shorter-term data are more predictive of risk going forward than longer-term data, just from a risk forecasting perspective. The other issue is that the fluctuation in sector weights within asset classes make it such that if I use in my model, old data from the S&P 500 or data from a long time ago, I'm looking at a different sector composition, for example, right? The technology sector in the S&P 500 has been really, really unstable. From 5% of the index, it actually reached 29% in ninety nine during dot-com. Then it declined back to 15 in 2005, and now it stands at 21%. So you're really not looking at the same asset class. If you use this to do a strategic asset allocation, you're basically modeling risk, the risk of an asset class that no longer exists. And there are other examples of that. Even in bonds, the duration of the index has changed, right? The, the weight of high-quality bonds has decreased from 21% to 2% as a share of corporates, and the weight of riskier bonds has changed The duration of the Bloomberg uh, Barclays uh, has has increased, right? It was four and a half years back in 2005. Uh, Now it's six, seven years.
2: Didn't the S&P break out communications from technology also, if I'm remembering correctly, within that sector? They kind of cleaved it in two?
1: Yes, so sector weights change over time and even the classification and which stocks are included in the index. Emerging markets are another really good example. Emerging markets used to be very much commodity-dependent, cyclical factors and financials. Emerging markets now have become a lot more high-tech than they used to. You have some large tech platform companies like you have in the U.S., in China, for example. So I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that historical data is useful, but It's not always the case that the longer your data set, the better for your financial risk modeling. And one way to get around this is to use factor models. And here I'm talking about looking at how the asset classes are composed, what the asset classes look right now based on the current factor exposures, and then backfill the historical data for those factors. So I guess what I'm saying is there are different ways of addressing this issue, but, you know, is more data always better than, uh, than more recent or more relevant data? The answer is no. And part of this also comes down to risk regimes, right? You, you can forecast the type of regime you think you're going to be in and then sample data from a similar regime in history, for example.
2: I know we only have you for a a limited amount of time. I only have you for another 10 minutes. So let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests called our speed round. And we'll start with uh, streaming. Tell us what you're watching on either Netflix or Amazon Prime or what podcast you might be listening to. What's keeping you entertained during lockdown?
1: I love that question. I mean, my answer is not going to be very original right now, but I just finished Queen's Gambit which I thought was excellent. Very, and the other really one good. is my, my son, he's 13 and, um, he'd never watch the lost series. And I, I'd never, I've never watched it either. So we've just started from the beginning. Uh, we're in season two of the lost series, which is a, an older show, but uh, we're really enjoy enjoying it. So Barry, no, no spoilers,
2: please. All right. I haven't seen any of it. So, uh, You don't have to worry about spoilers for me. You mentioned one of your mentors uh, earlier in your career. Tell us who helped to shape your career, who gave you guidance as to both um, how your jobs progressed and and your own uh, investment philosophy.
1: Let me name two mentors. First, my father. I talk about him in my book. He was a finance professor for 40 years. Uh, I even took a couple of his classes Second mentor was Mark Kritzman. He is CEO of Wyndham Capital. He also teaches finance at the MIT. And uh, there's a story I like to tell about the early days of my collaboration with Mark Kritzman. Back before the year 2000, I didn't speak much English. I grew up French-Canadian, and I interviewed with Mark for a research internship. I don't think it was a good interview except that I'd read every single paper he had published up to that point and thought and still think uh, he's a genius. But he was reluctant. You know, he had access to the best students from the best universities in the U.S. But he was pressured into uh, this interview by my professor, and he also had a business relationship with Mark and with State Street. And I'll just say that I learned years later over a glass of wine, that mark had pushed back really hard from taking me on as a research intern apparently he had said and I quote i don't care if he's free because we didn't I, I was i was writing my thesis for my master's degree so i wasn't there was no uh pay salary involved apparently it said i don't care if he's free my time is not free uh this was this was over a glass of wine a few years later at the time though back then all i got was a call from state street uh in montreal saying hey mark can't wait to wait to work with you he's very excited that you're going to come to to boston ultimately i did this research project for him as an intern and he ended up mentoring me for over 10 years and we wow. co-authored a lot of papers together. I like to say basically everything I know about quant finance and asset allocation I've learned from Mark.
0: Huh. Quite
2: quite interesting. Let's talk about books. Tell us some of your favorites and what are you reading right now?
1: Okay, so I love to read that's very hard to answer when you read, you know, fifty plus books a year. I generally read about business, philosophy, some history, psychology, sports. I just I, I read nonfiction. I, I love memoirs and biography. Uh and, and I was told I, I knew you might ask that question. So I, I prepared a few books by category. I know I'm cheating, but business. I would say a recent book I've read is The Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger uh ex ceo of disney excellent very well written lots of business wisdom sports sports memoirs this is an older one open by andre agassi and even if you're not into tennis it's just a fantastic book to read another one maybe less well known is by an ultra runner and even if you're not into ultra running is worth reading the book is titled North by Scott Jurek, and uh, it's about how he broke the record for running through the entire Appalachian Trail on the East Coast. Another one that's good is Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, uh, if you want motivation. Uh, health, there's a book called Why We Sleep that I recommend for everybody uh, to realize how important sleep is. Productivity. Deep Work by Cal Newport is one of the best books on time management I've ever read. On on philosophy or or dealing with change and uncertainty, I would say anything on stoicism is interesting. Books by Ryan Holiday, like The Obstacle Mm -hmm. is the Way, Stillness is the Key. Those are excellent books. Entertainment, Entertaining Business Stories. the, The book about Theranos, Bad Blood, was fantastic and just finished A Billion Dollar Loser about work, which is also a fascinating story. So, Barry, you asked for one. I gave nine or ten. Apologies for that.
2: No, not at all. Everybody loves, loves those answers. Um, it's, it's, I think that's people's favorite question. Let's talk about recent college graduates who are interested in a career in asset allocation or, or wealth management. What sort of advice would you give them?
1: So, this is mostly advice I've gotten from Mark Kritzman. mentioned him earlier. First, always look to build your human capital. And by that, I mean your network of industry contacts. It could be your publications and journals, your reputation on the conference circuit, it could be your education credentials, for example, the CFA charter, anything that differentiates you from your peers and that ultimately. No one can take away from you. It's your own human capital. Second, I would tell people starting their careers, stay close to revenues. Uh, In a lot of jobs, it means staying in front of clients, but it might also, in investment management, mean to stay close to investment decision-making. But stay close to revenues because your role in the value chain will be more motivating and more obvious. The other one I would say is sometimes it's underestimated. Emphasize communication. When you move from being a student to working in the real world, you move from from an environment where it's a, it's basically a meritocracy, right? You study hard, you get good grades. But but in corporate life, collaboration, teamwork are really really essential. So maybe as a student, 90, 95% of your success is from your own intellectual merit and how hard you study. On the job, you'll realize that even for the most technical of roles, maybe about just as half of your success, maybe more, is determined by how well you communicate. Because in corporate life, collaboration and teamwork are so essential to success, especially inside large organizations. So don't neglect communication. Uh, lastly, I would say adjust your, adjust your perspective. Talked about the secret to happiness in life earlier. Lower your expectations. I think managing your expectations is important. Not getting worried about short-term setbacks. Just look at the long-term trend and make decisions based on the long-term trend in your career, not short-term setbacks and last one i will say take care of yourself you know of all the advice you can give people starting their careers i think that's the that's the most important one diet exercise sleep all these things reinforce each other it's like a virtuous circle you can't you can't take one away right eat well you'll have more energy to exercise exercise you'll sleep better sleep better you'll have more self discipline with your diet the next day you get the idea it's a virtuous circle and if you get these 3 right or you know close enough no one's perfect uh and you know but diet exercise sleep reinforce each other take care of yourself don't wait for motivation just just build habits it's much mm. easier to to do things well when you when it's a habit as opposed to waiting for motivation which is very fickle there's a, another book Barry I'm going to cheat I'm going to add another book The Power of Habits by Charles Duhigg, I think, is worth reading.
2: Very interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 20 or so years ago when you were first getting started?
1: I would mention some of the takeaways from my book. Quantitative methods work best when used with a healthy dose of qualitative judgment. That's something I've learned over time. I wish I'd realized earlier. Risk is easier to forecast than returns, and this has tremendous investment implications. When in doubt, it pays to stay invested for the long run. You know, think of my elevator pitch, stay invested, stay diversified. Diversification works very well when you don't need it, and not so well uh, when you actually need it during crashes. And if you're an investor, you really need to take that into account. And lastly, in markets, uh, you really need to expect the unexpected. Things change very quickly in markets, and we've just been through such an environment.
2: Hmm. Quite quite fascinating. Thank you, Sebastian, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Sebastian Page. He is the head of multi-asset investing at T. Rowe Price, where his group runs about $360 billion. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, check out any of our previous, I don't know, call it 400 interviews we've done over the past seven years or so. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net you can give us a review on apple itunes sign up for the daily reads i write every day at ritholtz.com check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com opinion follow me on twitter at ritholtz i would be remiss if i did not thank the crack team of professionals who helped me put together this conversation each week Marufel is my audio engineer tracy walsh is our project manager Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg
0: Radio.